Today I have an announcement for everybody that is listening to this podcast and especially is interested in improving his or her skills in terms of leadership, in terms of influencing. I'm talking quite a lot in this podcast about it and I'm really passionate about it because I've experienced firsthand in my own career and in lots of other careers how investing in this skill and then applying these skills has helped me to have much more successful and much more motivating and much more satisfying career. So if you want to improve your leadership skills as well, then I have an offer for you. We are now enrolling again into the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. We designed this program, so we, as Gary and I, designed this program for statisticians to strengthen your leadership skills. This will help you to maximize your impact at work. And it also helps you if you have no direct reports. It's really about cross-functional leadership skills. The Effective Statistician Leadership Program is a modular program. It contains self-learning parts and, if you want, also moderated small group discussions. We have de specifically designed this for statisticians. And there's a lot of examples from the pharmaceutical industry, of course, but the concepts will also apply outside of the pharmaceutical industry. It really aims at all levels of statisticians and we had all different levels of statisticians. We had people that were very, very early in their careers and we recommend that if you have started your first job in the industry, let's say at least one and a half years ago, then this is really good for you. We had pretty senior people in this program as well. And we got a lot of really, really positive feedback from them. So one of them, for example, is Richard Zink. Yeah? You can check on the homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com, what he, without us asking for it, wrote on LinkedIn about it. And that is really, really good. There's also a lot of other quotes from people that speak about the experience that they have in the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. So there's, for example, one participant who said, the program really helped me to demystify and break down what leadership is. Or... Another one that says the number one thing that was most helpful is that the structure of the program has helped me to go through the aspects of leadership and evaluate them one step at a time. That speaks to the framework that we are talking here about leadership. Our framework gives you really all the different aspects about leadership because there's actually quite a lot of them. And, of course, there's a lot of leadership trainings that go into specific parts of that. For example, presentation or negotiation. And we put all these different parts of leadership 
into this framework. And that helps you to identify what is the basis, for example, for leadership, which is communication. And what you then need to learn about all the others. And when something goes wrong, you can then identify much better what went wrong and then adjust accordingly. We also give you a good model for how you can improve your leadership skills because it's not sufficient to just, let's say, read a book or listen to this podcast. That helps, of course, but it's not sufficient. There's a couple of other things that you need to do and actually you can do on a continuous basis, on a daily basis to learn about your leadership skills. And in this program, we will teach you how to do this. Now, this program has basically three different parts in it. The first is we have videos for self-learning, so at your own time. So it's really great for people all around the world. Initially, we had it in a in the live format and of course that meant that you needed to organize your calendar to be available at a specific time. Now it's self-paced learning and we have about 13 hours of content. Now 13 hours of content sounds really really a lot but the program is there to be actually consumed about something like five months. So If you think about five months, then it's about, you know, maybe an hour per week or less that you need to invest in it. Okay, the second part that we have in the program are assignments. These assignments will help you to apply what you have learned through an exercise or in your day-to-day -day job. And these applications and then reflecting about it will help you to much better understand the concepts, to see how it really applies in your day-to-day -day situations. The third part of the program consists of what we call masterminds. And the masterminds are really, really cool part of it. In these masterminds, we create small groups of about 10 people each and Gary will walk with these groups through the uh, program and will review what you have learned, discuss about your experiences, and then you can learn from your peers as well as talking about your own experiences and, and reflecting on them what real leadership is and how to become better at it. And you will learn all the different steps to become a better leader. So this is, of course, something that is a premium access. Yeah, so the, the masterminds take a lot of time and therefore we only have 30 slots available for these. Taking just the online recording and the assignments doing it yourself is, of course, you know, There's much more slots available for that. That's no problem. But for the mastermind, there's only 30 slots available. And I guess when you listen to this, 
Um, we have already started with a promotion and these slots will actually fill up quite fast. So head over to theeffectivestatistician.com and check out the Effective Statistician Leadership Program. It's directly in the menu at, at, the, at the start. You can't really miss it and, and sign up for it. Now you'll probably need to convince your supervisor about why your supervisor, your company should support you attending this program. And we have been thinking about this. I had these discussions quite a lot and Gary as well. And Gary has been, you know, a, a supervisor for a very, very long time who were approached by people about, um, yeah, I want to do this program or I want to do this course and I want to spend money here in, in terms of my development. And he knows what makes a supervisor approve these things. And so he has put down a couple of good arguments that you can use with your supervisor and why he should approve this spending. Of course, we also had students that paid it out of their own pockets because they saw it as something that is really, really helpful for their career, irrespective of whether the company pays for it. But if your company pays for it, that's even better. Now, what is the price of this? The, um, you can actually purchase it just, you know, without the masterminds, then it's 449 euros, which is about more or less the same in, in dollars, a little bit more in dollars. Or you can have the, all the three modules that we are offering together with the masterminds, then it's 699 euros. I think that is really the best value for money and I would highly recommend to go with the masterminds. If you want to just try it out and just buy the first module, yeah, then you can have the first module for 179 euros and later purchase also the other two modules, so modules two and three for 349. But I'd really recommend you going to the one with the masterminds. I think that is really the best value for money. If you are a supervisor and you're listening to this and you want to enroll more than 10 participants, and we had a couple of companies that enrolled lots more, um, then just contact me. You can find the email on the homepage and then we can set up something specific for you. If you have any questions, yeah, reach out to me and write at alexander at theeffectivestatistician.com. I'm happy to help you to, to answer any questions or contact me via LinkedIn. Yeah. And if you have any questions about it, we have now more than 100 uh, students that went through this program and we received a lot of really, really good feedback. Uh, just recently, I had a supervisor that um, enrolled quite a lot of students in, into this program. And we had a very good discussion with him and he was very, very enthusiastic about the feedback from the participants. Or I spent some time with um, a company, actually uh, a CRO, that enrolled 
large proportion of their uh, statisticians and their senior programmers in this program. And they absolutely loved it. And they actually did it without the masterminds, but they organized it, uh, the masterminds basically themselves within the company. That's, of course, also possible. Yeah? So if you have a good moderator or someone that is already very, very good in, in leadership skills, that's maybe an option yeah? that, that you do it completely for yourself. Yeah, and go through it as a, as a group, um, then yeah, touch base with me and we can enroll a, a, a bigger group uh, at once. That also makes it easier. And there is also a special bonus if you enroll more than 10 participants. Okay, so that's it. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com Uh, to learn more about this program. There's also frequently asked questions on all kinds of other things that I don't want to mention here on the podcast. More quotes and all the details about the program. But I'm sure it will help you. Invest in yourself. I wouldn't talk about it if I wouldn't be really convinced about this program. Um, Gary spent years, actually a decade, uh, working on these. And he is really proud about this program because it encompasses all the learnings that he had over this, this decade of teaching about uh, leadership to statisticians. And you can benefit from it. So head over and register now. Or talk to your supervisor to get approval. Bye for now. You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast. The weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Aidan Flynn about clinical study simulations and how we can use them to design the best studies in the most effective way. And here are things now possible that really blow your mind. So stay tuned for this really, really nice discussion. If you think about simulations, maybe you have done a little bit of that at university or in other areas of your clinical or professional life. But today we are talking a lot about all these different things that we can do to get a better understanding of the performance of different clinical trial uh, designs and how we can explore all these different options using simulations. And so Aiden has worked on this in this field for a very, very long time and has a really, really nice tool there that people can use to better simulate their studies, better understand what are the different options you can have and also how to do that in a very, very interactive way so that you can have a direct conversation with your other study team members or with your project team members. So stay tuned for that. I actually found Aiden on LinkedIn. Maybe you just head over to LinkedIn and connect with me as well. I'd love to see more faces of the Effective Statistician community. 
and maybe then you also get more content from you. Well, you surely get more content from me because here I'm just posting on a weekly basis on LinkedIn, it's nearly every day. And there's lots of further content you can get there. I'm producing this podcast in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rates is only £20 for non-high-income countries and £95 for high-income countries. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode and today we are talking about simulations. Something looks like, you know, making up numbers, but actually in this field, uh, we can learn a lot from these, so to say, made up numbers, because we can understand quite complex patterns overall. And for that, I'm very happy to have Aiden on board. Aiden, how are you doing? I'm very well, Alex. Thank you. Very good. So, um... You're CEO of Exploristics. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this company and how you, you know, how you got about to to create it and and move forward with it and and run it and what was your purpose there? Yep, yeah, uh, sure. Uh, so I've been working in statistics uh, for close to thirty years now, uh, Alex. Um, I started in academia. I, I moved to Glaxo. I was at Glaxo for 10 years. And then I set up Exploristics 11 years ago. And, uh, and I guess there were two uh, reasons for setting up Exploristics. Uh, one was really the, uh, the, the volume of data that companies like Glaxo were generating as part of their development programs or they had access to externally through real world data sources. And the truth was, you know, we, we really weren't uh, making best use of all of those uh, data sources. Mm. Um, uh, and part of the reason was there just wasn't the capability around. There wasn't the resource available to do that. So I felt there was a, a an opportunity to start building some of those capabilities and then work with other uh, companies to really help them exploit the data they have access to. That, that was one reason. Uh, the other was, you know, having access to lots of data is good, but the truth is a lot of it is just noise. Uh, a lot of it is uninformative. Uh, a lot of it was never collected in such a way that we asked the question, well, what are we ever going to use this data for once we collect it? So it was never part of a design process. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt there was a need for developing a new tool uh, whereby we can ask, you know, what questions do we want to answer from our studies? Uh, and are we collecting the right data? Are we collecting enough of the data in order to give us a good chance of, uh, of addressing those questions? And there was one particular motivation, uh, which was around um, precision medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, 
when I worked at, at, at GSK, we were collecting blood samples in all clinical trials with a view to using them for pharmacogenetics. But the truth is, uh, our, the approach at the time was very reactive and retrospective. So if the study failed in an all-comer population, we might do some genotyping to identify a subgroup. You know, and, and statisticians understand very well the chances of uh, identifying a subgroup in a study that was never designed for that purpose uh, is uh, pretty small um, and sometimes not far off zero. So we were uh, spending a lot of money in the collection and storage of samples and genotyping, but the chance of success was so small. And I, and I felt, you know, if we're serious about things like precision medicine, we should really be building it into the designs of our studies, or at least having a, a strategy, a company-wide strategy that give us a best chance of success. If you talk about precision medicine, what does that mean for you? Um, a, a good question. It, it really is about understanding uh, variability in a treatment response. Mm -hmm. And you can use lots of different types of data to understand that variability, uh, sort of patient level factors to understand that variability. But then to use that uh, information to design more effective studies or to target the treatment to uh, people who are more likely to derive additional benefits of treatment. Okay. Okay. Yeah, very good. So... We are today here to talk about trial simulations uh, or simulations and maybe a little bit in general. So why do you think we need to simulate in the first place? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's a, a, almost a macro level argument here, uh, which is we're working in an industry where there's a an extremely high risk of failure. Mm -hmm. And that risk of failure hasn't really changed for a very long time. You know, more than 90% of drugs that enter clinical trial fail to reach the market. And I would argue <clears throat> that uh, a lot of the failures are avoidable. And they are avoidable if you do a bit more upfront uh, planning. And there are simple things like... Uh, you know, the inability to recruit patients, um, you know, that's something that clearly should be known uh, at, the, uh, at the start of the study. But I, I also, I think there are some practices that sort of don't, don't really help. Um, one, when we're designing clinical trials, I think we make some very simplistic assumptions, even in the case where the design itself is you know, quite simple, a fixed uh, type of design, um, whereby uh, we justify, you know, a sample size based on some fixed set of assumptions that we may have obtained um, from the literature. You know as well as I do, uh, if you get the right paper <laughs> and you take the, you, you take a, a, a set of assumptions from that, you know, you can you can you can justify virtually any sample yeah. size calculation. But what that, that isn't doing is capturing the, the true variability of the data that you're going to collect as part of the study. So I, I think we, we have this practice when designing clinical trials to take a, a complex situation and to reduce it to 
a very simple one, whereby we use a fixed set of assumptions, which we know to be incorrect or at least not not real. Um, so that's the the kind of broader macro level. Um, there's, uh, I think as well, as we think about the data that we're collecting uh, in clinical trials and the complexity uh, of it, I think, you know, there are now some new types of approaches that we use, both the design and the analysis of the data and the decision rules that we apply that make it uh, that make it difficult to to use the fairly you know standard uh, sample size calculation tools so uh, we need something more than uh, than exists right now and this is where things like simulation can really help to try to better capture the complexity of the situation that you're working in yeah because if you have lots of kind of you know, if you just have one parameter you look into, yeah, and you just say, okay, um, yeah, I understand for this response variable, you know, there is that kind of variability, and I have this kind of sample size, and then I can just, you know, put some kind of distribution uh, around it and create, you know, instead instead of the power, I create a computer probability of success mm -hmm. that's pretty straightforward yeah um but i think you want to go into much more depth and you know want to look into many more features than just that one mm. um what features are you thinking about well yeah, yeah uh, again great question and and i i i should have said in the last uh, answer but i will lead into the uh, answer in this question too um you know I often got frustrated as a statistician where, you know, you'd be working in a project team, um, uh, the protocol would be developed, uh, you know, the, the study population was kind of decided, <clears throat> even the endpoint uh, was decided on, and then the team would get to the section in the protocol which talks about statistics and sample size. And... Um, you know, they they would throw it over the fence to the statistician to say, "Can you uh, can you complete that bit?" Um, yeah, and by the uh, way, we have this budget. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. By the way, can you can you make the number a hundred? You know, um, but yeah, that sort of thing. Um, and and I felt that 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 frustrated me because I felt as statisticians we had an opportunity and the skills to input into lots of other parts of the protocol and. They are all interrelated, right? Yeah. Um, so you know you can come up with a sample size of a hundred or a thousand, um, but you know if if that's not aligned with the inclusion and exclusion criteria or the ability to recruit patients, then you know it's it's silly to 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 keep them as um, uh, completely um, uh, separate. So I felt. You know, we needed a tool that could facilitate much earlier engagement between statisticians and the uh, and the rest of the uh, project team, which okay, is why. So, yeah. So, which is why we we built Keras Cloud, and I'll just explain how it works. So, the first step is to build a virtual patient population that comprises the characteristics that you believe to be important in the disease. So that includes all of the outcomes 
of interest. It includes all of the patient level risk factors of interest. And where the tool is kind of unique is it, it allows you to model the correlation between all of those features. It also allows you to introduce new data features such as missingness and specific okay. patterns of missingness as well or other you know imperfect data and uh, allows you to evaluate the impact of that i'll i'll stop and let you yeah. ask in, in terms of the correlation so that's an interesting part yeah so um if i have you know literature data i can always think like well there's a baseline characteristics and here's the outcomes yeah. and so i have all the marginal distributions but you never get the published covariance metrics. <laughs> so how do you get to that? Good good question. Um, and this is where patient-level data uh, comes in. Um, you are absolutely right that the, one of the first steps is to look through the literature to, uh, to get those kind of population-level um, uh, statistics. And then we need to try and get the, the correlations. Uh, it is... It is pretty common, I would say, and we we have rarely had a case where we haven't been able to access patient level data. If we're working with a larger pharma company, they will yeah. of course have patient level data, and this yeah. goes back to my earlier comments about you know fully utilizing data that you might have access to. But even for um, smaller biotech companies, they might not have previous clinical trial data, but they will have you know, investigators that they work with who might have patient uh, registries that are relevant okay. for the disease that they are looking in, they are able to broker uh, access to that patient level data uh, for us. Um, the other element that we are looking at is to to start is, is to setting up relationships with uh, data providers so that we can be much more, uh, much more kind of strategic and proactive in terms of building those patient level uh, data sets that uh, can drive the simulations. Yeah, and then I think that is where it also comes in quite nicely is all the initiatives to make data more publicly available. So all these transparency initiatives like clinical, so the clinical data sharing, there are similar things in, in the US, there's Yoda in the, in the US, there's uh, Project Data Sphere as well. So there are these platforms whereby yeah. you can apply for access to uh, to patient level uh, data. And you know, I'll, I'll give you a a, a recent uh, example. Um, we're working in uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, we have successfully applied to uh, to Yoda, and you know, we've got access to patient level data from 50 clinical trials. So that allows us to get a really good evaluation of the correlation structure of the data. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really nice. So patient level data is something that we kind of, you know, prognostic and predictive factors there. You also mentioned uh, trial enrollment. How does that factor in? Is that kind of then to... to if you have more adaptive designs and things like that, or where does that factor in? Yeah, good question. You know, uh, one of the beauties, I think, of uh, of simulation is it kind of allows you to go into different um, directions. So, you know, you can, 
you can evaluate the ability, the probability of a clinical trial designed to achieve the you know, primary objective of the study. Um, but given the information that comes out of the simulation, such as the sample size, you can start to model uh, other things, you know, such as, well, if we need 100 patients or whatever the number is, and we're able to recruit, you know, uh, two patients per week per site, you know, how many sites will we need in order to, to, to complete recruitment within a certain period of time? So you can start to build on different features uh, of the simulation and you know one as I said the nice thing about simulation is it allows you to go into different uh, directions and for me crucially the statistician is at the heart of that you know um, really helping to, to, to drive that uh, that conversation but even that if you do choose to go into you know the recruitment side of things uh, like all simulations you need to have some good data on which to to do your um, to to run your modeling. You can get some of that from literature, but I I am aware that some of the operations groups within within big pharma are starting to collect yeah. that type of data. Uh, you know, and again, I think stats really need to get involved in that to try and um, influence the way that data are collected because you know they they will have a big impact in the future if they're able to to to, to really grab hold of that opportunity i actually had an interview with steve pike uh, as an earlier podcast episode where we specifically talked about these operational aspects of of yeah. clinical studies and clinical trial programs where statisticians can have a much bigger impact And this is exactly what, what you're referring to mm. and uh, completely see that, you know, if, you know, how can you best balance this kind of number of studies, number of sites versus recruitment time versus kind of quality, all these kind of versus budget, all these kind of different, you know, aspects in, yeah. in the best way. Yeah. 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 Completely see that. Uh, you also mentioned, um, other data quality aspects that you can basically um, model into the simulation as well, um, like missing, so, so dropouts and things like that. Yeah. Um, anything else in that regard that you, that you thought about? Well, um, I, I think the the thing with uh, with, with dropout uh, and missingness, and this is very relevant in the current uh, COVID uh, situation, Uh, where there are ongoing studies that um, where they are getting patients, you know, they have lots of patients who have missing uh, missing visits. Mm -hmm. But the study was designed in such a way where they didn't really think about that level of, of missingness, or they made a very simplistic set of assumptions about how they would handle missingness, such as, uh, well, you know, we assume maybe 10% or 20% of the patients might might be dropouts, so we'll just inflate the sample size yeah. by, by that amount, uh, which, which again makes a very simplistic assumption that, you know, missingness is missing at random um, when, uh, you, you know, often that's not the case. So we wanted to, to build something where you could introduce missingness uh, and different patterns of missingness where the missingness was related to other features. So, and it, it's similar to what is underlying our, our software, which is this ability to look at correlation uh, between variables in the same way 
missingness can be correlated with other things. You can correlate it with, you know, safety signals. You can correlate it with efficacy or lack of. You can correlate it with treatment. So in other words, you have more missingness in one treatment group versus uh, another. So you can you can start to introduce some realistic patterns of missingness and then evaluate what that what impact that pattern has on the likelihood of success for the study, which has proved a really nice feature uh, over the last few months. Yeah, I can guess that that's it. Yeah, just based on my own experience, just all the discussions about the COVID-19 impacts on studies that was on, or still is on everybody's mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you can do that with a study that you are planning, could you also use this tool to look into a study that has already results and then see kind of, you know, under which uh, situations it would break, basically break. So, so to say, what kind of bias would you need to have introduced in your study to come up with a, you know, false positive finding or something like this? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, it, it, you can you can essentially use it at, at any time. We've done a really nice piece of work uh, recently where we've looked at uh, both adherence and persistence to treatment looked over different patterns of adherence and uh, persistence uh, and asked the question well when do the conclusions change what what is the extent of that you know lack of persistence and adherence and what difference does that make so so absolutely you can uh, you can use it at different times but ultimately i think what you're trying to do is to build all of that information into the design stage of a study so that you prevent yeah the avoidable uh, failures. Yeah, so you, can, you can already, from a kind of estimate framework, see kind of, you know, how will your different sensitivity analysis for specific estimate, how will yeah. they look like? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's really nice. When I was doing my last simulation, and of course, that's a little bit some time ago, <laughs> I always had problems with kind of if I want to do you know to have a grid that is of all these different simulation patterns that is let's say quite dense and quite detailed and then I would have for all these different simulation steps you know a reasonable number of iterations well I needed to wait sometimes quite long. And I, I can remember in my times when I did my my PhD or my master's thesis, I would kind of occupy the complete rooms that we had at, at the university with all the different PCs and kind of, you know, lock them all. And they would, you know, all run for overnight <laughs> to, to, to give me each one a certain set of the simulations that I want, want to build together. Then. How's that looking now? Uh, I had a very similar uh, experience uh, doing my PhD. I uh, I had three or four different um, towers in the department, uh, and I'd set them all off on a Friday and hoped to come in on the following Monday, and they would all uh, finish. And sometimes they uh, fell over in the week uh, over the weekends. Yeah. So <laughs> you had to start the uh, whole thing again. Yeah. Um. I, you know, and I and I think that problem still exists alex especially if people are trying to run simulations on 
on a local machine or on a single uh, server. Um, we we've got round that, and I, and I think increasingly others are getting round it by using cloud computing. So our software is is based on uh, AWS. Before you kind of hit the go button, or as you hit the go button to run your simulations, it it does a a quick calculation um, uh, to work out how long it would take. Um, to run on one machine, two machines, or whatever, then it can fire up up to 96 uh, parallel machines. So that uh, really, regardless of the complexity of the simulations and how many runs you're doing, um, you know, you're going to get the, the answer back in minutes rather than, uh, you know, days or, or, or weeks even. So I, I think in modern computing, there are ways around the, uh, the the kind of processing power that is needed for complex simulations, and and that's how we get around it. Okay, very very nice. Yeah, I've, you know I've read so much about AWS and uh, seen so many posts about it, but I think that's the first time that this is mentioned here on the podcast. So <laughs> yeah. we, we we do like to be innovative. So uh, yeah. So in terms of um, having all these simulations, that is really great. Now, how do you communicate that in the best way? Because if you then have, you know, all these what-ifs and all these kind of, you know, big tables of what comes out of that, especially if you have, you know, more, more complex things, how do you get that communicated in the best way? That's a good question. I think, you know, what you can't do is hand people, you know, hundreds of tables and say, okay, the answer's in there some, somehow. Um, you've really got to take advantage of uh, visualization tools to get your message uh, across. A, a nice one that, that, that we use is a, is a heat map mm -hmm. um, where if you imagine along one dimension of the heat map is all of your design options and then across another dimension is well here are all of your analysis options and your decision rules and then where they intersect is the probability of success for that particular combination <clears throat> we have that that's our kind of a first thing that we uh, present but the tool that we have is very interactive so you can start to once you want to drill into uh, one of those scenarios you can kind of click on the map and it it kind of it presents more uh, more information uh, about it. So I would say visualization tools uh, is key for uh, simulation. One of the nice things about simulations uh, is there are uh, some underlying simulated data, which you know allows you to provide a bit more context, which make it real for the project team. They they want to see graphs that they're kind of used to. Yeah. Um, uh, to, to seeing and, and having that underlying data allows you to provide that additional context. So again, we will use you know uh, multi-panel plots to to allow people to look at certain scenarios in a bit more um, a bit more detail, which is a a really powerful um, uh, tool, I would say. And you're presenting kind of. Uh, results in a way that they would be used to seeing. Um, I think one of the benefits of a simulation is it, it, it helps the team to engage. 
you know, we, I think any statistician will know this kind of situation where, you know, you have completed a, a stat section of a protocol and it gets sent out for review. Once it comes back, there are comments in all sections until you get to the stat section and nobody said anything. And, <laughs> uh, and you know, you, you, you sometimes think, I could literally have written anything there. Nobody is in a position to really evaluate what I've done. So whereas when you are involved in a simulation activity, uh, one is uh, one good thing is that the project team, they recognize the need for this, you know, so mm -hmm. they are invested in it. You take them along that on that journey with you, um, and and actually, it's a it's a really powerful um, tool to help the team get to an optimized study design where they all feel that they've had an input. So so simulation is kind of that framework around which everyone has their input, uh, everyone agrees on the assumptions that you make, and then. You know, everyone can agree on what the final decision was because you've provided that um, framework. Um, it's a, in my view, it's a really powerful tool for doing that. But an important part of it is having those visualization tools, which will allow them to look at all of their results, which are multi-dimensional, uh, in a way that they can understand. Yeah, that's that's really good, and I think there is the. The speed of the response really, really good. Yeah, if if you have you know a discussion, then you think, okay, this is the current scenario, and someone comes up with, what if we would change this one? Or someone else joins the team, and I'm not sure about this assumption. I think yeah. it should be ten percent higher or whatever. Yeah. Yeah? yeah, and then you say, oh yeah, I need to go back. I can tell you the answer tomorrow. Yeah, and. But with a tool that is much more interactive, and maybe you don't get the you know super precision, but you get kind of a, a ballpark very very quickly back. Mm. Uh, that really helps you to have these interactive discussions about things and see okay where you're going, and you can really kind of engage. And also, people understand and value your work much more i think mm. that's a really really nice nice benefit and you're not kind of the the nerd somewhere that does this magic and then comes up with some things that we don't understand yeah. and we just copy and paste into the protocol yeah uh, absolutely you are you are embedded in the team you are the go-to person when it comes to any kind of quantitative decisions that need to be made um absolutely i think it's a really powerful way of of you know, becoming, having a much greater impact and, uh, you, you know, having a, a really a pivotal role within a team. Yeah, and I think the also the discussions which we mentioned earlier about the operations, yeah, I'm pretty sure that will be really, really interesting in that, that regard as well. Yeah, yeah. So that is how it looks now. And, you know, we just talked about, you know, how our time at, you know, when we did uh, our masters and PhDs has looked like. So there's so much going on in that space. What do you think will happen in the next five years? Yeah. Um, again, a great question. As you know, this simulation is not new. People have been doing it for a long time. But I do think it's it is disjointed. You know, there are lots of individual tools that might do a 
a specific application of simulation, uh, you know, whether they be uh, adaptive uh, designs or, or whatever. Um, the, I, I, I feel we're in a situation now where if you have that sort of tool, then, of course, you know, adaptive design is the answer to everything or some alternative tool. Then you, you kind of try and promote that. I, I think we need to sort of try and consolidate that a bit uh, so that we can evaluate the performance of different design options all at the same time and compare them with, you know, the more standard uh, approaches so that we're making a much more informed decision about, well, actually what's best uh, in our case, you know? Um, so I think there's going to be a, a bit of a consolidation there. And I think the, the industry uh, needs it. I, I think there's certainly a bit around how do, you, how do you feed those simulations? And we talked a bit about data. You know, when you look within Big Pharma, uh, there are moves now to look back at those historical data and, you know, how do we best uh, use those? There are external uh, data providers that are beginning to, to open up uh, now. Um, so I think you're going to see much more use of historical data to feed the simulations and what I'd love to see as well is a, a, a true completion of that feedback loop. So, you know, we design studies, we make assumptions at the start of the study, those studies are conducted, we get the actual clinical data uh, out of it. And, you know, we need to start comparing. These are the assumptions that we had, this is what actually happened. How do we learn from that? So there's a there's a proper kind of ecosystem, which is data-driven. It has all of these tools running in the middle, but it's, uh, there's a feedback loop as well. And, and we start to, to learn from, uh, from that feedback to make sure that we are you know, making much better clinical trial design decisions uh, in advance of the study. And, and, and I think with that, statistics has the opportunity to completely transform uh, the industry. Awesome. Yeah. And I think there is, you know, you just mentioned in terms of the application, thinking about the just the design features and the results, but then about the operations. And then I think there's lots of other areas that you can think about, you know, is about lots of other business parts that we can go into, like like finance and, and other areas where, you know, we need to kind of evaluate what are our decisions and what how would that look like and what, what will be the consequences. Yeah. And, you know, maybe at a given point, you know, everybody has this kind of own simulation on on the on the iPhone or on the smartphone or whatsoever, where you can just say, oh, if I now kind of doze up here or doze down or whatsoever, yeah. how will that look like for me? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah. You know, give you a nice current example uh, of some of the things you're, you're mentioning there. You know, over the last 20 years, clinical trials have become more complex and not necessarily because of the different types of designs that we have, but just because in the data that we're collecting. So, you know, the number of endpoints that we collect in clinical trials is much higher than it used to. Um, but, you know, those endpoints have not necessarily, particularly if they're secondary or exploratory endpoints, not part of a design process. Uh, and what, what we've started doing is building all of those into the design and then working out, well, what's the likelihood that we will ever be able to say anything about those uh, endpoints? And, you know, often 
the chance of success is, you know, a few percent. It's it's really very small. So there's a decision around, you know, what value is there by including them, uh, because that just increases the cost of the study, and you're building in some of the financial uh, aspects of, of that. So that's that's a, a piece of work that we're doing at the moment. Awesome. Thanks so much. You'll find a lot of you know, further descriptions of these uh, features in the show notes and, and links to um, Exploristics and uh, Aiden's team. And so thanks so much, Aiden. That was an awesome discussion about simulation. We started kind of from the very, very early in terms of why simulation helps. It helps you in all the aspects where, you know, just Algo, you know, just from a purely analysis point of view, you you can't move forward or just with mathematical solutions. And that you can look into many more different features of your design, of your operational aspects of, of the study. And yeah, with the use of AWS and other cloud co computing services, there's really no kind of big limitations anymore on, on the computational aspect, which is really, really good. And I love that you talked about the communication of visualization, uh, communication of these simulations, and that visualizations really play a key role in there. I think that is another area where statisticians can really work a lot more because the community is just expecting that non-statisticians are so much more pulled towards visualizations rather than uh, tables and numbers, which, you know, statisticians are traditionally more looking into because they want to directly see the, the impact. And that's so, so nice with visualizations. So thanks a lot for this really nice interview. Any last point you would like to make the listener remember? <laughs> well, I, I know the, the audience for this is predominantly a, a statistics uh, audience. You know, I think as, as a group of people, we've been um, maybe t taken over slightly by the, the data science uh, community. Um, and I'll give you a nice example of that. Uh, we advertised a job earlier this year for statistician, uh, and we got two applications. Then we posted, reposted the same job and put data science instead of statistician. Uh, and we got more than 70 applications. So <laughs> <laughs> we didn't change anything else. Um, so so uh, we, we've sort of slightly been overtaken here. And I, I think we need to try and grab that back a bit. Um, we try, we need to raise awareness about what the difference between st statistics and uh, other areas of Uh, data science uh, uh, are uh, and in, in a way it's been it's been nice that with covid um, statistics as a as a as a word has been uh, used a, a bit more and, and and that's nice too but and i think part of the thing that we need to do and it's as you've uh, uh, mentioned we need to embrace some of these new data visualization uh, customers love that sort of uh, stuff and embrace some of these new tools and approaches and, and, and try and drive some of that change. Awesome. Thanks so much, Aiden. Thanks, Alex. 
This show was created in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Head over to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes with all the links and also lots of other episodes, lots of other content that will help you to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. Please tell your colleagues about this podcast. They will likely benefit from it as well. Reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.